Hello and welcome to the WPHP Monthly Mercury, the podcast for the Women's Print History Project. My name is Candace Sharon, and I am one of the hosts of this podcast and a longtime editor of the Women's Print History Project. This is the second of five, five bonus episodes that expand on our Frankensteinian episode for the Bars Nasser 2022 conference, New Romanticisms. In the process of putting that episode together, we interviewed each of the keynote speakers and our conversations with them were delightful, brilliant, generous, and wide ranging. They were also far too long to include in their entirety in one episode of reasonable length. In this bonus episode, we're sharing our interview with Noah Herringman, whose keynote was titled, Who Has Priority in Deep Time? Noah Herringman is Curator's Professor of English at the University of Missouri. He is the author of Romantic Rocks, Aesthetic Geology, Sciences of Antiquity, Romantic Antiquarianism, Natural History, and Knowledge Work, and most recently, A Literary History of Deep Time, which came out in January 2023. We spoke to him the second last day of the conference, so the day before he presented, and if you listened to our full conference episode, It's Alive, you'll have heard our discussion about the media ecology of priority claims, but you won't have heard us talk about the rhetorical form of the priority claim, what didn't make it into Noah's talk, what his conference highlights were, or what it even means to be new in the first place. Cool. Oh, who's going to ask which question? Let's break it up the same way? Yeah. Opposite way? Yeah. You want to start again? Same way. All right. So Noah, thank you so much for coming in and um, having this conversation with us today. We're very excited. We haven't heard your keynote yet because it's happening tomorrow. Um, Me but we're very, <laughs> well, I think we can all say that we're excited mm-hmm. to hear it and uh, see how that goes. Um, and so I guess we're going to ask you, you know, a bit of a, a preemptive question, but if you had to describe your keynote in one sentence or question, what would that sentence or question be? Well, there's a subtitle, which is a question, who has priority in deep time? So that's the shortest version you're going to get from me. (laughs) If I uh, get to have a whole sentence, then I'll say that uh, I'm I'm describing the the rhetorical form of the priority claim, and I'm arguing that that rhetorical form operates across literature and science and also connects uh, romantic period uh, discourse about origins with with uh, our discourse today. Mm-hmm. So I'll be making those two points. But the the priority claim is something that's studied much mm-hmm. more by historians of science right. uh, than it is by literary scholars. And so that's a sort of a, mm-hmm. an exploration that I'm offering at this time. Right. Wow. Um, um, can you say a little bit more? Uh, because like I feel like priority claim is a phrase I've heard before, but as someone who doesn't really study the history of science, I'd just love to like hear how you would define priority claim and maybe like an example of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a very famous <laughs> example is uh, who invented calculus? Was it Newton mm. or Leibniz? And and if, if you've heard anything about it, you're most likely to have heard the consensus view that, well, Leibniz in Germany and Newton in England mm-hmm. came up with the idea independently, independently. and at the same time. <laughs> but in fact... There was this very ugly uh, mm. priority dispute between wow. them in mm. which uh, Leibniz was charged with some justice 
And this speaks to your, uh, mm-hmm. indirectly to your media history interest mm-hmm. for the project as well, uh, with having seen manuscript material of Newton's oh, right. and at a time in the late 17th century when manuscripts, uh, manuscript circulation, which was, mm-hmm. was a much uh, more important yes. form of, uh, for the dissemination of ideas, uh, that, that was later proved to be possibly correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, at the time, though, um, Neither one of them would would back mm-hmm. down, and um, Interesting. Newton and Leibniz both did and said some very nasty things, and so <laughs> wow. historians have had a great time with it. And neither mm-hmm. one of them wanted right. to uh, cede priority to the other mm-hmm. on who had invented calculus, right. and the, you know that a very polite yeah. diplomatic solution that scholars arrived at later about this simultaneous invention mm-hmm. story that was not the reality at the time. Right. And so, have, with this example in place, you can probably yeah. think of all kinds of. Uh, both in the narrow yeah. sense of who is the first to invent or discover something, a planet, a star, a right. chemical, a process, but also in a much more extended sense when any kind of first mm. is claimed. Right. So I guess, sorry, just a quick follow-up question because I'm curious. Um, <laughs> is this something that, because you mentioned, for example, that these two um, figures you're talking about were, were like actively antagonizing each other. They were they were saying rude things back and forth. So they were each trying to make a claim for themselves. Is this something that like people do for themselves or that scholars do later looking back or both? Um, I don't know, like I'm thinking something that as soon as you said that made me think of, I think I saw something on Twitter recently about Gutenberg inventing the printing press. Um Mm-hmm. Or like print, and how like is that actually true? Like, is there is there a, a longer history of print or printing presses before Gutenberg? So mm-hmm. it, that made me think of it, but I don't think that was like contested directly. Like, I don't think he was in an argument with somebody else about who who invented it. Um, yeah, I don't well, know. There was a question claim, in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's very often contested. Mm-hmm. And, and precisely in the age of digital media by people mm. who know that the Chinese invented movable type right, right, uh, exactly, centuries and exactly. centuries before Gutenberg yeah. ever did. Yeah, and so yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a, a, an excellent opportunity mm. for historical one-upmanship where probably in the 15th yeah. century, neither right. Gutenberg nor Chinese printers were concerned about priority. But right. now that matters very much to yes. us for cultural mm, and yeah. media theoretical reasons. Yeah, well, and for thinking about the like overarching narrative that has kind of just like stuck mm-hmm. so so strongly into minds of it was Gutenberg mm-hmm. kind of thing right and pushing back against that anyways yeah fantastic. so um, <laughs> to bring this back to uh, the, the question of deep time uh, what are some of the debates then about who who's making priority claims about deep time um, and what who are you going to be exploring in that with in your keynote well, uh, d- deep time mm-hmm. uh, intrinsically is the space of origin. So mm-hmm. whenever you make a claim about deep time, you're making a claim about what came first. Very often that's a pre-human mm-hmm. occurrence, and mm-hmm. so the priority mm-hmm. can't be accredited to a, a, an individual subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all the same, uh, in the moment when any type of explanation of the origin of the human species is positioned against mm. natural history, uh, at that point of intersection, which is yeah. really what interests me the most about deep time, then mm. a priority claim is being made about when relative to geological history, mm-hmm. where relative to uh, geography, uh, and, and so on, mm. uh, the, the human origins are situated. And, and so... Um, that when yeah. those two things are conjoined, then the stakes suddenly become uh, mm-hmm. very high. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think um, 
the WPHP, obviously, we were chatting a little bit before the interview got started. It's a print history project. Um, and the Romantic period was very, like, print culture was explosive. Um, mm-hmm. Books, print um, during the period. I'm really curious if um, print intersected or intersects with these ideas that your keynote is taking up. Um yeah, how are how are priority claims being, I guess, conveyed through print? Um, yeah, were like, they are they present in, in print of the period? Is yeah. that something that that you yeah. that you consider and like in your research of of this history? Much more so. From uh, my perspective, as someone who's always read a lot yeah. of natural history, mm-hmm. the final quarter of the 18th century uh, is is a golden age uh, mm-hmm. for natural history and print. And so in this era, as opposed to the Newton-Leibniz mm-hmm. uh, era, many revolutionary kinds of arguments were being made in print and often migrating from periodicals mm-hmm. into book form. So a very famous case, uh, the, the so-called father of geology, James mm-hmm. Hutton mm-hmm. Uh, first put out in the transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh his thesis yeah. uh, about mm-hmm. uh, there being no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end in geological time that then migrates into the three-volume mm-hmm. uh, quarto uh, theory of the earth. Um, and uh, and most of the kinds of claims about the age of the earth that I'm tracking do uh, happen and are witnessed mm-hmm. in print and debated in book reviews. And mm-hmm. so print is huge mm-hmm. for that. Something that I've learned recently, mm-hmm. um, uh, last summer, I spent my whole entire summer reading four, the four volumes of Humphrey Davies' collected letters, oh. which are newly edited by Sharon Rustin and oh. Tim Fulford. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they spent a, a lot of time with the manuscripts, looking at manuscripts uh, all mm-hmm. over archives mm-hmm. and libraries. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and make a case actually for the continued importance of correspondence networks, even in the course mm-hmm. of Davies' scientific career from 1798 to mm-hmm. yeah. 1826. Uh, and so I was fascinated by that to learn, uh, to reconstruct yeah. the kind of process whereby actually Davy, who was very pugnacious about his priority claims mm-hmm. to have been the first to discover the elemental nature <laughs> of certain substances, mm-hmm. would go first to yeah. autograph letter, uh, from there to some printed form where the letter was printed, mm. and 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 those claims would sort of migrate right. um, through these various stages from manuscript into different print forms. In right. in so doing, yeah. they amassed this incredible authority, and Davy Davy wow. was as it were recruiting witnesses, you know, by first yeah. sending the letter, uh, and then moving through to print in that way. So. Um, he's somebody yeah. I also uh, am addressing in, in, in this talk, even yeah. though he wasn't interested so much in deep time. Yeah. But that's yeah. where you get into the formal aspects of the, mm-hmm. of the priority mm-hmm. claim, which is the sort of new interest that yeah. I'm developing. And that's really interesting to think about. Just I'm thinking about when I was working on my PhD, and it was always this kind of like anxiety about like, when should you publish? How should you go about publishing? Where should you publish? You don't want to like not publish for too long because then someone else might like take your idea. But also if you're presenting <laughs> at conferences, like people know it's your idea. So it's this kind of like complicated ecology of of making some kind of claim to knowledge and saying like, I came up with this. Um, that's really... Uh, really political. Um, That's a great, great parallel. Yeah. Yeah. It shows how little things change. Yeah. 
<laughs> I like that description of it being an, an ecology of its own kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's interesting to think that, that there's this kind of like media ecology going on on top of like this history of like a deeper environmental um, ecology or natural history ecology mm-hmm. that's kind of like built mm-hmm. up and created something. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. two ecologies come together there. As I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking a lot about our fields mm-hmm. as uh, scholars in romanticism. Uh, we often hear or make claims mm-hmm. about the invention of nature, poetry, yeah. the discovery <laughs> of subjectivity, mm-hmm. all of these firsts mm-hmm. that in this case, we're definitely making those claims on behalf of mm-hmm. historical actors. And, and mm-hmm. indeed, that's how their uh, posterity mm-hmm. is sort of underwritten. Right. Um, and so that's another way in which within our field, yeah. you know, as humanists doing this postmodern yeah. work, we are calling on similar kinds of structures. Yeah. yeah. And that actually makes me think of something Kate was um, complaining about about half an hour, 45 minutes ago when we were talking about <laughs> the word exceptional and how much uh, you hate the word exceptional yep. because it kind of like pulls people out of their context. Um, yes. And she was specifically talking about it in the case of like people talking about um, women writing um, as being exceptions to the rules or as exceptional figures when really like... We have an entire database that says, you know, they were one of 20,000 people. Like it's, there's so many more than those exceptions that occasionally will get focused on because we think they're exceptions. And then we just kind of like keep replicating that narrative over and over again. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because they're the ones we happen to know about. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So it's also interesting to think that like maybe some of those um, priority claims, like Mm. they're priority claims because there's something someone thought to claim in some way Mm -hmm. or, or identified as something that they could claim rather than um yeah and then the narrative continues and then yeah the the other parties found Mm -hmm. their own interest in advancing that claim on behalf of the first person and 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 Mm so on it goes so so davy uh is able to Mm -hmm. mobilize print networks and this you know during the time Mm -hmm. much of it during Mm -hmm. uh the time of total embargo on france he's even able to place publications in in french language journals and so it's it's definitely a case of print networks being mobilized Mm -hmm. and you probably in the course of your work can cite Mm -hmm. numerous such instances in which (laughs) writers who were savvy about mobilizing print networks uh, saw uh, success in that way. But um, you offered me the opportunity to talk about some things that didn't make it into the talk. Yeah, Please do. I was going to say anything that hasn't worked in there that you really wanted to include. I'm excited about that, although it could be a very long interview. (laughs) Um, But... uh, so something I've, I've been thinking about for a long time, and it only comes up briefly mm-hmm. in the space of the talk, uh, the, the, the figure, this imaginary figure of early man mm. is the human being with whom uh, sort of modern Western inquirers yes. are accustomed to populate deep time. It's mm-hmm. that, that first family with the, you know, the man and his club looming very large and the dioramas <laughs> in the natural history mm, museums. Yeah. That's who lives in deep time. That's mm-hmm. who has priority in deep time. And, and this figure of early man as late as, eight, as 2018 mm-hmm. and the animated film by the title early man. I don't know if no. either of you remember that. No. This idea is getting replicated. Yeah. 
Um, and you know, uh, the discourse around deep time is a very mm-hmm. masculinist one. The discourse about mm. priority claims even more mm-hmm. so, as you can imagine. And so, <laughs> you know, where's early woman and all this? Yeah. And yeah. this is something that, you know, all levity aside, I mean, it, yeah. it sounds comical because the phrase is so unfamiliar to our, mm-hmm. our ears. But who is early woman and how does she enter on the Absolutely. scene? And mm-hmm. so I, I offer a little tiny exploration by way of a Robert Burns poem, ironically a poem yeah. by a man, <laughs> about Eve, uh, Eve being the first to factor mm-hmm. in human ah. prehistory, as it were. Um, and that's a topos that you can also find yeah. in Mary Wollstonecraft and her critique of Paradise Lost, for example, mm-hmm. I discovered, um, and, and a couple of other inst- instances. And so... As long as I've been working on the Deep Time Project, which is now mm-hmm. actually nine years, wow. um, th- there's a, there's the seed of of an early woman project yeah. and a, a sort of a revisionist account of prehistory and how it's oh. been imagined uh, and why it is that that the, the mists of time always have to be populated with this male actor first, mm. even down yeah. to today. And so uh, there's a Deep Time Time thing in there. There's a priority <laughs> thing in mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm you know maybe. In your database, yeah. I can find some relevant references yeah. to uh, to this character. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually, I love this because you're talking. You, it's very much looking to this um, this past, this history, thinking about the past, mm-hmm. thinking about how they're thinking about it. But the conference is called New Romanticisms. So just to kind of, <laughs> I don't know, throw a bit of a wrench in here. We'd love to know, kind of like, you know, what does what does the name of the conference? mean to you like taken literally what kinds of new romanticisms are you seeing in the field or more broadly um Mm. what do you hope to see for new romanticisms in the future Mm. well um don't uh don't tip my audience off about this tomorrow (laughs) but uh, the the whole priority claims topic is really arising out of my own cranky response to the idea that anything could or should be new in romanticism You know, beyond yeah. romanticism itself, which is very new with respect to geological time. Right. That's not really the point that... <laughs> we that, forget sometimes, right? We're very small. One or both of you earlier in conversation brought up the idea of, of sort of uh, exploding the canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's proven to be a perennial source of novelty, which is actually hard to date the onset of, but I would say... Late 1980s, mm-hmm. early 1990s, we've been doing that. Yeah. Maybe, you know, you could point yeah. to, um, to Stuart Curran's work on women writers and that mm-hmm. the, that publication. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, you know, where for right. you that moment lies. I would right. love to hear, actually. Mm-hmm. But so yeah. so this is a, a perennial mm-hmm. source of newness. And indeed, the claim to newness right. is one uh, rhetorical tool that we have right. perennially yeah. At our disposal. How long is something to... new for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, like, the more I kind of read and explore, and I, I'm interested um, teaching-wise and a little bit in research and moving kind of later into the 19th century, one of the things that I find really interesting is, like, we talk a lot about exploding the canon, creating a new canon, mm-hmm. recovering these people who have been forgotten. But often a lot of the people we're, we're saying we're recovering are popping up in different places, in different periodical writing, in, you know, like kind of a a cultural consciousness um, throughout. And I don't know, I would be, I I don't know 
I think that's really destabilized my sense of like any kind of recovery work. The or language around it canon is, gets reformation. Yeah, yeah. And that's what makes you a romanticist because yeah, you, right. have, you have a sense of that <laughs> irony and, yeah. and reflecting on that. I have more to say about this in my talk too, but I want to say mm-hmm. something more more constructive and direct, also to your question yeah. about an experience at this conference. Mm. I think I would I can point to mm-hmm. one panel where I had a sense of because. I, like everybody else, I came yeah. to the conference wanting to find out what new romanticisms are mm-hmm. on offer. And so I went to a panel called Hidden Materialities um, and heard uh, uh, these great papers um, about uh, different uh, ob- sort of objects retrieved from the material mm. archive. Mm-hmm. So uh, sounds in one case, uh, commodities in another mm-hmm. case. Um, and, and in each of these talks, uh, the texts, some familiar, some unfamiliar, were being called upon as witnesses uh, mm. for the recovery of the material objects themselves. And so you see a kind of a reversal ah. there, uh, or it's something at least that was new to me and that was very new, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. where um, instead of engaging in some sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a reading either suspicious or naive of a text, yeah. you're enlisting the text as your ally in order to recover actually something that's mm-hmm. quite different and something right. that's uh, ephemeral and, and has mm-hmm. become almost intangible, like a sound. And so I thought right. that was really interesting. I wonder if yeah. we'll see more of that. Yeah, well, that is really interesting. And that's almost kind of... Um, a reversal of, I think it's Daniel Heath Justice and Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, where he talks about expanding the idea of like what can be considered as a literary text mm. and including mm-hmm. objects like baskets and um, uh, different types of textiles what can we as, read? as text as well. So thinking about how, um, yeah, the text, like what we would think of as literary texts being used to kind of explore objects and recover objects, but then also kind of starting to think about those objects as um, uh, as texts in their own right that can tell us more things. Yeah, and the yeah. texts that mm-hmm. give us access to those objects' history are really what mm-hmm. makes them legible. And yeah. so I, I, I think that's a great a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. Well, and I think... You might have you might have given this away already, but we'd love to finish by asking you what your favorite part of the conference has been thus far. You mentioned that you really enjoyed that panel, but that panel yeah. was terrific. The, the plenaries have been terrific. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of sort of mini mm. highlights. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, the organizer Andy McGinnis, uh, who ha- you know has a lot of help and, and, mm-hmm. and a great team, but mm-hmm. uh, he he is. Uh, many people have been saying a force of nature. Andy is Absolutely. amazing. I, I, <laughs> Absolutely, th- this is yeah. a new frontier. That's what's new: the post-COVID frontier of pulling together an mm-hmm. event that that literally incorporates. Uh, I don't know how many people on mm-hmm. screens, a couple mm-hmm. hundred maybe, and a yeah, couple hundred yeah. in person, and he's doing it all, and he's doing it with such grace, and it's coming together. So he's a one-man mm-hmm. highlight, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> uh, Christine McHugh singing during her oh, plenary yeah. was lovely? a highlight yeah. uh, for me. I've never heard a, 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 a scholar sing in there during their talk. And, really? Uh, I uh, haven't either. Uh, I'm so lucky was, because I, uh, well, I mean, it wasn't during a plenary. It was during an undergraduate lecture, but um, Leaf? Um, Davis. Leith Davis. Davis at Simon Fraser University will sometimes sing for her students in her undergrad romanticism class and I remember it so clearly um, <laughs> and she works with a lot of the same stuff as Christine McHugh so anyways it was it's always it's very memorable and it's so lovely and fantastic mm-hmm. so is she still doing that I don't know that was how long ago was that for me 
seven years ago, eight years yeah. ago. I hope she still does it. It was she so good. She probably does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Noah. This mm-hmm. has been so lovely. It's been great to hear more about this. Um, we read yeah. your abstract and we're like, wow, we don't know very much about this at all. And we cannot wait to ask him so he can tell yeah. us because this, is, this sounds so good. And yeah. it absolutely was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. It's very kind. Great. Yes. Thank you for the great questions. Yeah. And it's been a great teaser for your keynote tomorrow, which yes. we're very excited to hear the full yep. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad somebody's sticking around. I, yeah. Many people have already apologized. We'll be very enthusiastic audience participants. <laughs> <laughs> I, can think of, I can think of questions already. So. Oh, yeah. No one else Thanks. steps yeah. up. Maybe I will. Yeah. All right. Thank you. In the end, I didn't have to ask a question because the conversation took off. However, both our interview and Dr. Herringman's keynote left us with more than a few. If this episode has also left you with questions about how women engaged with priority claims and scientific writing in print more generally, one starting point could be the science, natural history, and medicine genre in the WPHP database, where you will find everything from botanical illustrations to pamphlets about inoculation against smallpox. You should also be sure to check out Noah's recent book, Deep Time, A Literary History, out with Princeton University Press. This has been the second bonus episode of It's Alive, the WPHP Monthly Mercury at New Romanticisms. If you haven't listened to our Bars Nasser conference episode yet, it is the first episode of season four, and it contains interviews with keynotes, organizers, a pedagogy prize adjudicator, MA students, and grad student prize winners. Next week, we will be sharing the third bonus episode, a conversation with keynote Patricia Matthew and one-man conference highlight, organizer Andrew McInnes. You can keep up with our project by checking out www.womensprinthistoryproject.com or by following us on Twitter for the moment at the WPHP and on Instagram, probably more permanently, at Women's Print History Project. Thank you.